science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. New York City, we have an event coming up August 24th at the Bowery Poetry Club. Go to storycollider.org for more info. This week's story is from Uzma Rizvi. It was recorded in March 2015 at the Bell House in Brooklyn. The story was produced with Springer as part of the Springer Storyteller series, featuring real-life stories from researchers on the front lines of discovery. See and hear more at beforetheabstract.com. Um, so my name is Uzma Rizvi, and I'm an archaeologist. And uh, that actually shouldn't be as difficult to say as I just felt it. Um, and I've been feeling that for a very long time. I've had a very troubled and complex relationship with science. And it's a relationship with the ways in which I was taught archaeology and the ways in which archaeology developed as a discipline. It is, in fact, a colonial military discipline. That's its roots. That's its history. And what's really interesting about it is that as I was taught how to be an archaeologist, I realized that my body was changing, right? And it actually started with my body. Actually, it all starts with my body. Um, I was an undergraduate and... uh, a beveled rim bowl from Mesopotamia came by, and I took it from the person sitting next to me, and my fingertips came into the bowl at the same place where the fingertips of the potter had lifted the bowl from. And I, in that one moment, I thought to myself, holy, am I allowed to say fuck? <laughs> holy bananas. <laughs> holy bananas, I thought to myself as an undergraduate as undergraduates often do. (laughs) I am touching a bowl that someone 5,000 years ago touched. And I was transformed, and I was transfixed, and I was passionate about where I was going. Fast forward to graduate school, that horrible, terrible experience of graduate school. What they do is they break you down you are lying in a puddle of yourself and your belief systems and, your, and everything you think is true. And then you are told, reconstruct yourself. Figure yourself out. And in that reconstruction, you're just not thinking about yourself and putting yourself back together. You're actually thinking about the discipline that has caused this rupture of your being. And as I was thinking about the discipline, I realized, holy bananas. This is a colonial, racist, epistemically unjust system of knowledge production. How did I get here? Look at me, how did I get here? Right, but I was there and I had a choice. I could lay in that puddle for a couple more years, right, or I could figure it out and put myself together and I did. But I still, even though I got my doctorate, I still wasn't sure about the science the, the implications of it being truth or fact was really problematic for me. But there was something else about being an archaeologist that I had forgotten. I had forgotten the touch. 
In 2009, I was given the opportunity to go to Iraq. Not part of the military, not part of ar archaeological investigation, but just to go to Iraq. And I said, yes, because that's what you do. You're like, it's 2009, let's go to Iraq. And so I went, and I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to go to Iraq. What do I need? I need sweatpants. Because if you're going to go into a war zone, what you want to be is comfortable. You want to be able to just be comfortable, just comfortable. This is New Jersey coming out in me, right? And so I'm just like, all right, I am now comfortable. But then I thought, started thinking about everything I, I didn't want to take with me. And I started thinking about like cataloging the materiality of this experience of going to a place like Iraq. And I thought, okay, so it's a war zone. So anything that is mechanical or technological in any way, like a pen, a phone, a watch, anything with gears, don't, don't take them. So it was me, my sweatpants, a golf pencil, and a notepad that went to Iraq in 2009. And I'm really glad they were with me because that golf pencil started off here and ended here by the end of that trip because it was the most traumatic experience I had had not just as a person, but as, um, actually, as a person, when I think about it. I was gonna say as an archeologist, but actually it's what made me an archeologist, right? And so one of the things that I, I recognized that was happening is that as I got there, I began to categorize everything I saw. I looked at it and I said, okay, here are things that will keep me safe, here are things that will not. I woke up in the morning and I looked outside, I opened the door, and there were bullets, and I was like, okay, that's not gonna keep me safe. And then I looked at the other side and I was like, here is a tent and here is another sort of opening, vague opening. And there is a historic monument that I know that I want to go see. So I have to go either through this opening, through this sort of guarded space, or through this tent. And someone informed me then that, well, you're a woman, speaking about gender, right? You're a woman, so you have to go through the tent. These are checkpoints. And I thought, checkpoints? Checkpoints? Okay, I, I'm used to checkpoints in airports. I'm used to checkpoints at borders, but this is a neighborhood. I'm in a hotel, I want to go to this historic monument, and there are three checkpoints between me and this historic monument. So I thought, okay, I'll go through the checkpoint, and I walk into this um, tent-like space, and there are about five or six lanes of women. We're all, we all walk in, and we walk up, and then we walk through, and then we come to the guard. And the guard pats me down, and I hand her my passport. I did have my passport. That was one other thing I forgot to mention. Passport, very important. And she said, who are you? Where are you from? Where do you belong? And I say, I'm, I'm American. Here's my passport. And then they look at me. You're American? And I'm just like, oh, really? Like, <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm American. I was born in America. I was brought up in America. I'm from New Jersey. I'm wearing sweatpants, for God's sake. What more do you need? And they, they, it was not really funny, actually. <laughs> funny, funny, but not really funny. funny not like funny, ha-ha funny. Funny like, oh, crap, I hope they don't kill me funny. Right? And so they're running their hands down my arms, and they're saying, no, where are you from? Where do you belong? And I, I had no answer for them. I had given them everything I had. And I said, well, my parents come from Pakistan, but they kind of come from India and maybe they come from Iran, and they're like, well, we actually think you're Egyptian. I was like, yeah, I think maybe I'm Egyptian. <laughs> actually, you might be right, I'm, I might actually be Egyptian. And so I, at this point, I'm like, I've already been standing here at this checkpoint for five or six, seven minutes, and every minute feels very heavy. I will be whatever you want me to be to get through this checkpoint. And they let me go, I am that day Egyptian. And I begin to operate in this kind of like, what do you want me to be kind of phase. 
right? I will be what you want me to be, and I keep going. One of the things I noticed, though, is between checkpoints, everyone's really silent, right? And so I'm walking, and I'm thinking, ha ha, I was this Egyptian, and I'm like, oh my god, they're bullets, and no one is talking to me, and it is really stressful out here, and I can feel the trauma in the air. I can feel how, how death lingers. And I begin to look at the walls, because I, I, know, I know walls. I know walls. And these walls were traumatized. They were standing with bullet holes in them. And they stayed standing. And I remember just walking by and being like, you know what, I can't say it's going to be OK, because it kind of sucks. But I'm just going to touch you to let you know that I'm here. Right? I began to interact with the city, with the walls, in a very different way. By the third or fourth day, I kind of had my checkpoint routine, and I kind of knew my walls. And then I woke up, and the checkpoint wasn't there. And I looked into that space, and I said, where did you go? Like, what, wh how, what is happening here? Why did the checkpoint move? And then I was told that, in fact, every few days or every week or so, they move the checkpoints, because, in fact, checkpoints are the most unsafe place to be. I thought, well, that's great. Okay. Why are they the most unsafe place? Because they blow up all the time. People wear bombs and walk into the checkpoint and will explode. And I thought, well, that's problematic, right? But then where did this checkpoint go? Did this get blown up? This is just two blocks from my hotel. And he said, no, that's part of a military strategy. They want to fracture, essentially what happens is you want to fracture the neighborhood. And so I began doing survey. I did an archaeological survey. I started mapping in my mind where the checkpoints were, how how they moved, when they may have moved. I looked at the post holes, right? Because each of these tents leave very deep marks. I looked at the kerosene lamps. It was January, I forgot to mention. It was really cold. Sweatpants didn't help. Kerosene marks on the ground, the darker the ash, the more recent the movement, right? So in order to take care of my body, I became an archaeologist there. I mapped that, I mapped the shit out of that city, right? I watched every checkpoint and I thought about how everything moved, and I thought about my body as it moved through it. I thought about the walls. I began to think about materiality in a completely different way. And then I went into this new checkpoint that was just a block away, and I thought, okay, well, I have to go through this checkpoint, and so I, and so I will. And so I walked into the checkpoint, again, ready to be Egyptian, Iranian, whatever you want me to be, um, because obviously my passport's not enough. It's probably not enough in this country either, but you know, whatever, I'm not saying anything. Um, so I, there's a tent. And I walk in, again, the raised platform. We're all in, we're all walking towards these guards. And suddenly we hear, hear gun, gunfire. And so we're just, we're quiet because guns are shot very close by. And then I start thinking, okay, guns are being shot. Just breathe, just breathe. After a little while, chatter begins again, right? The woman next to me starts talking. And this is what, something really interesting about checkpoints. It's like outside, none of us talked. The moment we got inside, we were talking about the price of tomatoes, the price of honeys, their kids, everything else. So she says to me, why are you so tall? <laughs> and, and so I looked at her, and I was just like, I, where I'm from, I'm average. But now looking around, I can see that I'm actually a little taller than everyone else. And I realized in that moment that she was just making conversation. So this is making conversation at checkpoint. Why are you so tall? And so I said, oh, well, so let me try making conversation back. What do you do? I'm a transport specialist. Oh, okay. I, I guess you're not working these days because there's no transport, really. And she's just like, yeah, none of us are really working. And I was like, okay. And she's just like, what do you do? And I said, I I'm an archaeologist. 
first time I said, I'm an archaeologist without any hesitation. And she said, oh, that's amazing. And so we start talking about these monuments, and we start talking about heritage, and we start talking about what it means to have heritage at war in a city that's fractured. And, I'm, and I, it's just buzzing, and I'm suddenly so relaxed and so in my element that I forget that I'm in a war zone. And that, that becomes such a significant moment for me. Like, I remember it so vividly. And then suddenly, you hear movement, and a skerfuffle happens, or something happens in the background. Something, something is moving. And we all become very still and very quiet. And we watch a woman fighting with the guards up in front and being escorted out. And in that moment, I realized I never thought about what might happen if I don't get through the checkpoint. If I don't get through the checkpoint, I'm going to be. And so I turned to this woman. I was like, I know you're just a transport specialist, but do you know what's happening? Like, where, where is she going to go? And she's like, no, no, we don't know. We don't know. The uncertainty of not knowing what happens if you can't pass is enormous. And my heart was just beating and beating, and everyone's heart was quiet because a woman had just been escorted into uncertainty. And we were walking, and I had just one woman, one or two women in front of me. And I remember vividly just standing there holding onto these railings and looking down and being like, okay, breathe. Just breathe. You're fine. You can be Egyptian. You can be whatever you want. Just breathe. And then I started counting the nails on the floor. And I started thinking about how heavy so many, like there were maybe 20, 25 women. How heavy might those holes go into the ground? What kind of mark might this leave? And then I was thinking, I was just like, well, if it leaves this kind of mark, if they leave tomorrow, how deep might this be? And suddenly in my mind, I began mapping. And it dawned on me that I, I, I was just falling into being what my body was trained to do. I was an archeologist, I am an archeologist. And so when I got to that front and I had my hands out, my legs spread apart, check me, because that's what you do, took out my passport, you're really American? What are you, what do you belong to, who are you? I said, my name is Uzma Rizvi and I'm an archeologist. Thank you. That was Uzma Rizvi. Uzma is an assistant professor of anthropology and urban studies at Pratt Institute of Art and Design, Brooklyn, where she teaches anthropology, ancient urbanism, critical heritage studies, memory and war trauma studies, and the post-colonial critique. She often finds herself trying to balance the very ancient with the very contemporary, both mediated by material things. Currently, she is writing about crafting resonance in the ancient world and is contending with the global heritage of epistemic laziness. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, I, Daniel, Christine Gentry, Skylar Bear, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to The Bell House for hosting the show, to Springer Storytellers for being amazing partners, and to Sunsets for totally blinding us during a recent show. Actually, that was pretty great. Thanks for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.